We're going to continue our series of living life well. And um, over the next three weeks, we're going to um, be looking at the theme of worship. And um, the title I've been given today is, What Are You Living For? Mark Twain said this. He said, the two most important days in life are the day you were born and the day you discover why you were born. God has never created anything without a purpose. Everything he creates is for a purpose. When you look at the whole world, you look at the whole universe, the galaxies, everything. God created everything for a reason and for a purpose. And in Ephesians 11, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1 verse 11 to 12, it says this. It is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Part of the overall purpose that he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that we find out what we're living for. To discover our purpose in life, it has to start with God. In fact, life doesn't really make sense without God. And it's only when we discover God that we realize actually this life, this short life, starts to make sense. Because it is only a short life. It, we, we might get 80, I don't know, if we're fortunate, maybe 100 years, I don't know. And then we face eternity, which is forever and ever and ever. And what are we doing with this life? And I, I, so many times when actually I just live for today. There's so many times I'm living just to think, oh, what, what can I do today? How can I achieve? What can I do for my family? Uh, how can I get the right? How can I get my house right? How can I do all these things that actually we can't take with us? And those things aren't wrong. You know, it's, it's great to enjoy ourselves and have fun. And, 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 and none of those things are wrong. But it's what's our focus? What's our attention? Are we just living for today or recognizing that actually we're here not just for a short time and we've got eternity to enjoy with God. I, I, I don't know if you've ever thought this, but if, if God wanted to take me to heaven, then why didn't he just take me there? Why did he give us 80 or so years here on earth? I don't, have you ever thought that? I think that sometimes. And the only thing I can the conclusion I come to as I read the Bible is that this life is, is in many ways preparation for eternity. Because God wanted us to be in fellowship with him. God wanted us to choose him. God wanted us to, he, he, he planned us. He wanted a family. He created right from the very beginning when God created Adam and then Eve. God created them not to be alone. God created them for unity, for family. And, and God wanted us to choose him. Because that gives him pleasure. And God created us to bring pleasure to him. That's what, that's what our purpose is in life. That's, that's actually ultimately what worship is. It's bring, bringing pleasure to God. And in Revelation 4, um, verse 11, it says this. You, God, created everything. And it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. Everything he created was for his pleasure. You, do you know what? You bring pleasure to God. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You bring pleasure to him. He, he loves you. He, he, he just simply loves you for being you. Not for anything you've done. He just loves you for you because he created you and made you the way you are. He shaped you and formed you the way that you are. 
and he delights in you. I, those of you who are parents might understand this, but um, I remember sometimes when my children were a bit smaller, um, I was coming back from a long day of, you know, at work, and maybe I haven't had the opportunity to spend time with my kids. And sometimes I, I would go into um, their room, and just while they were asleep in bed, and just sit there and watch them. Just watch them sleeping. And it was so peaceful. And sometimes I'd pray, but sometimes I'd just sit. And I, I, would, I would get so much delight out of just seeing my children asleep. They didn't have to do anything. They were just sleeping. And, and you know, I think that's how God sees us. I think God looks at us and he goes, wow, wow. You're amazing. You're incredible. He delights in you. Not, not because we, you know, I've, I've struggled with this in life sometimes, thinking that I have to do something to be accepted. Thinking that I have to be something special or, or be someone that I'm not in order for people to like me and for God to want me and to feel useful. But you know what? God created you, you. And you can just be the you he created you to be because he delights in you and by giving pleasure to God, we're worshipping him. Hosea 6, verse 6 says, I don't want, this is God speaking, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your love. I don't want your offerings, I want you to know me. Now, this is in the time when the children of Israel were just going through the motions. They were sacrificing animals and burnt offerings to God just because that's what they always had done. And, and God looked at it and he said, hey, do you know what? I don't want these offerings. I don't want these sacrifices. I just want you to know me. I just want you to love me. And that just, I think, just shows again the heart of God that he created you and I for relationship to have relationship with him, to know him and to love him. And I believe that's our number one purpose in life, to know God and to love him. Each day, I, I, you know, I, I've, I've tried to do this sometimes. Each day, I, I, I try to think, you know, I have a list of things sometimes I want to do and I'm always disappointed that I never get through the list. I don't know if you're like that. But you know what? If a day's gone by and I've got to know God a bit more, and I've learned to love him a bit more, then hey, I think we've done pretty well. I think we've fulfilled the purpose that God has, part of the purpose that God has for us in knowing him and loving him more. That's his desire for us. In, in Matthew 22, this is when the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus and say to him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' reply was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He, he, he took the whole law and put it into two things, simplified it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's what God created us for, to love him and to love our neighbors, to love those around us. That's our purpose in life. And let's look at this um, chapter in Revelation that we just had read to us. And this is, this is the vision that God gives to John. And uh, it's a glimpse of what is to come. And it, said, it says this, after this I looked and therefore, sorry, there before me was a great multitude 
that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's a great multitude that no one can count is what it says. Now, in the verses before it, it talks about the 144,000 and, and them being from the 12 tribes of Judah. Now, if, if you could count the 144,000, then, then a multitude that's, that's too large to count has got to be pretty big. Yeah? It's got to be millions, possibly billions of people around the throne, worshipping God. And you know what? I think this shows God's heart. That actually he is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of him. He wants, he wants everyone, every person he creates, he wants them to know him and to choose him and to, to love him. I, I remember, I, I, some of you know, I work for Open Doors, which is a, an organization, that a charity that works with the persecuted church in, in some of the toughest countries um, around the world. And we help the church to be able to stand and be the church in some of the darkest places. And I had the privilege of going to a country in North Africa um, not that long ago. And, and in this country, um, there's only 30 churches in the whole of this country, just 30. And they're, they're still trying to close more down, but they've, at, the, at the moment there's 30. And um, I had the privilege of spending time with one of the with pastors of one of those 30 churches. And uh, he said, in order to be a Christian in this country, um, it's really tough because you have to have an identity card. And you have to carry this identity card around with you all the time. And on this identity card, it says religion. And, and the only religion it can say is Muslim. That if you ch- decide to become a Christian or any other form of religion, then, then basically you lose your identity and you become a nobody in the sight of that country. So you can't get a job, you can't buy a house, um, you can't have a bank account, you can't see a doctor, your children can't go to school. It becomes virtually impossible, well, pretty hard to live. And so the Christians in this nation, they have to live in community and and live off the land. And we're able to help provide them with cattle and and grain in order to be able to to live. But he was saying that um, every, every month, he said, as a church, they have baptisms because they've been seeing a huge harvest of people come to know Jesus. And he said, every month we're disappointed if there's less than 100 people being baptized. <laughs> this, this is in a country where those people are becoming nobodies. And they're cheap. Well, the nobodies to God, but no, you know, nobody's in their nation. They're, obviously, there's someone to God. But isn't that incredible? And I said, how are you doing this? And he said, well, he said, we can't go out and evangelize. We're not allowed to. He said, we get on our knees and we pray and cry out to God for our, for our brothers and sisters and for our nation. And he said, one day there was a knock on the door and he opened the door and um, he said, it was a lady who came and, and said to him, I need to talk to you. And he said, come on in, sat down. They had a cup of coffee. And, and she, said, uh, she said, I had a dream last night. And, and in this dream, uh, Jesus appeared to me and told me he wanted to be my friend. And uh, she said, can you explain this to me? What does that mean? And uh, he had the privilege of, of telling her the good news of the gospel, telling her who Jesus really was, what he had done for her, how he had given up his life for her, how he died and rose again and, and now is in heaven with the Father and how you can, she can have a relationship with the Father through Jesus. And she decided there and then to give her life to Jesus. And she said, you know what? This is so good. 
I have to go back. I have to go and tell my friends. I have to go back and tell my family. And the pastor said, you can, but you know it's dangerous. And she said, yeah, but it doesn't matter. I need to go and tell them. And she left and went. And two weeks passed by and they just assumed the worst had happened because it often does. Two weeks later, there's a knock on the door. And they open the door and it's this lady. And, and they're so excited because they, they thought the worst had happened. And they, they invite her in, sit her down, have a uh, cup of coffee. And she says, I have to tell you something. She said, I've spoken to every woman in my mosque. And now these, these mosques are huge. One of them was, I went past, was over a mile long. She said, I've spoken to every woman in my mosque. And she said, every woman has had exactly the same dream. Do you know what? God is, he's willing that none should perish. But that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And it's incredible what God is doing around the world right now. There are thousands of people every day coming to know Jesus. And we need to celebrate that. So there was a multitude that no one could count. And then it says, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now, I'm so glad that the gospel is for everyone, aren't you? It's for everyone. It's not just for us here in Kings Heath and Mosley. It's for everyone. For every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but aren't we so privileged here in Birmingham? We have people from, every, well, from, from lots of nations, from lots of tribes, from lots of tongues, from lots of different languages. We have an incredible opportunity to be witnesses, to love our neighbours and to tell them about Jesus. And then it says, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This image, this vision of John that John had, of the multi, great multitude from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, standing before the throne, seeing God there on the throne. And I wonder, I wonder what our vision of God is today. The one thing is for sure, whatever our vision is of God, it's too small. It's too small. God is bigger, way, way bigger than our brains could ever cope with. He's far greater and more powerful and loving than we could ever imagine. That's the God we serve. And we need to see God when we worship him. We need to see him on the throne. That's where he is. He's on the throne. Even if sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Even if sometimes life isn't going quite the way we intended Maybe we've had a bill that we weren't expecting. Maybe some health issue. Maybe something's gone wrong. But God is still on the throne. Remember, this life is only a short time compared to eternity. And then it says in verse 10, it says, They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation. They, they were... Their vision and experience of God was that he had saved them. He had transformed them. He had, he had delivered them and brought freedom into their lives. And they were so grateful and thankful for what God had done for them. Salvation belongs to our God. Are we thankful this morning for what he's done for us, for what he saved us from? You know, for, the, for many of us, maybe you've been a Christian for many years and sometimes we can just take it for granted. 
But let's remember, salvation belongs to our God. I remember speaking to a, um, a church leader from in quite a well-known church in London um, just recently. And he was talking about the worship in his church. And, and he said that they were going through a time where they would start to talk about the worship. And, and the way they discussed it was what the worship had done for them. How it made them feel. Was it good? Was it not? And they would rate it on how good the band was. Or, and they, he suddenly stopped and he thought, what on earth are we doing? So we've completely lost perspective here. Worship isn't for us. Worship isn't about what, how it makes us feel. Worship is for God. Amen. He's the one that we are worshipping. And so he decided the next Sunday he was going to strip it right back. He stripped the band right back. And he said, actually, we're not going to have a band this week. And he got up in front of quite a large congregation. He said, we're just going to give you time now to just open your hearts to God, to respond out of the overflow of your hearts and worship God together and just let it go. He said it was one of the most awkward, challenging services that he'd ever had. And his, his, um, his associate minister turned to him and, and said, if you don't ever do that again. <laughs> he said, if we do that again, I think everyone will leave. And this was his response, and I wrote it down. He said, I would rather have no church than a church that doesn't know how to worship. A worship is the activity of heaven. Worship is what we're going to do for endless days. We've just sung. We will sing his praise. And we have a chance to, to bring a bit of heaven to earth by worshiping him for who he is and for what he has done. And we're so privileged. We are privileged in our nation to be able to do this freely and openly. Don't ever let us take that for granted. Verse 13 and 14 of this passage says this. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, I don't want to get into theology around tri the tribulation and, and all that. And in fact, I don't know if I fully understand it anyway. But what I do know is that sometimes in this short life, we do go through challenging times. We go through difficult, hard times. And it's in those times when we discover who God really is. It's often in those times when we can draw closer to him. And I've seen this through the persecuted church. And I want to finish this morning by sharing a story with you. And it's about this man, Bahir. And for those of you who are at the, um, the Half Night of Prayer a little while ago, I think I might have shared this story then, but it's worth hearing again. His name's Bahir. He's from Turkmenistan. And Turkmenistan used to be part of the, the former Soviet Union. And uh, he said as a young man growing up, it was tough living in communism. And he said it was, it was really, really difficult. And he said one day an evangelist from Moscow came to his village. And he said he spent the day with him. 
And he, he said, he, he, um, he told me the gospel. He told me the good news of Jesus and what he'd done for me. And he said, I, I knew this was what I'd been waiting to hear. I, I knew this was the truth. And uh, he said at four o'clock in the morning, he got down on his knees. And, and with tears rolling down his face, he gave his life to Jesus. And he said the change in him was so dramatic he said he knew that he had to go and do, that God had called him for such a time as this. He was Christian number seven in Turkmenistan. And, and he leads his friends and his family. In fact, he leads many from his community and other communities to faith in Jesus, plants about nine churches. And his, his best friend who he grew up with and trained in the KGB decided that he wasn't going to believe this. He wasn't going to follow Jesus. And he said to Bahia, he said, Bahia, if you continue telling people about Jesus, I'm going to have to report you to the police because it was illegal. And uh, he knew he meant it. And he said to his friend, you know what? Jesus has done so much for me. I cannot stop telling people about him. He said, he's given up his life for me. Why would I, why would I stop telling people about Jesus? And his friend reported him. He ended up in prison where he was tortured for his faith, beaten every day. He said his friend was there every time he was beaten. And he said that they would say to him, but here, deny Jesus and we'll, we'll free you, we'll let you go. And every time he refused to deny Jesus, they put nails in his body. He said they, they put him in the electric chair five times and still he refused to deny Jesus. He said one day, he said he was beaten up so badly, he, he thought he was going to die. And, and he said that the officer put his foot in his mouth and, and was pushing him against the concrete floor. And he said his face was right against the concrete floor. And he said, uh, the, the officer said to me, but here, this mouth will never speak the name of Jesus again. And then he pulled his foot out. And here, just with a little bit of energy left in his body, he looked up at the officer and he said to him, he said, you can stop me talking about Jesus, but you can never change what Jesus has done in my heart. And, and with that, a few days later, they released him. I think they decided they couldn't do anything else. And he ended up in Turkey, seeking refuge in Turkey, and, and where he's now. And he works for Sat7. If you're familiar with Sat7, it's a television broadcasting company that broadcasts out to the whole of the Arab world. And every day, Bahia gets to tell people about the good news of Jesus. And he hears about hundreds of people every day coming to faith in Jesus. And one day, his friend, who was responsible for torturing him, responsible for reporting him to the police and getting him in trouble in the, from the start, phoned him up. And I don't know how he got hold of his number. I've not got a clue, but he did. And he called him and he said, Bahir, I need to come and see you. Now, it was just before Christmas. And Bahir said to him, uh, why don't you come and spend Christmas with my family? I mean, talk about forgiveness. And he came and spent Christmas with his family. He said, Bahir, he said, my life has fallen apart. He said, I became really ill, so much so that I couldn't, walk, I couldn't work anymore. He said, my, I became an alcoholic. He said, my, my wife and family left me. He said, but here, the difference between you and me is that when you needed your God, he was there for you. Said, but when I needed my God, he, he wasn't there. Will you lead me to your God? And Bahia had the privilege of leading his friend 
to Jesus. I said to Bahir after he shared that story with us, I said, Bahir, I have the privilege of going around in the UK and speaking in different churches and telling stories of the persecuted church. I said, would, would you mind if I told them your story? And he said, yeah, of course you can. And he let me take this picture. But he said, would you make me a promise? And I said, yeah, what's the promise? He said, every time you tell that story, he said, will you tell them this? He said, if I had to go through all that again, I would. And then he said, because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. That's what I want to leave you with this morning. Jesus is worth it. Don't ever give up following Jesus. He's worth worshipping. He's worth living for. He's worth giving everything for.